This Tailgate Society podcast is brought to you by our good friends at Deadeye Premium Barbecue Products. Born in Iowa and made in the heartland, Deadeye is your go-to source for everything barbecue. Sauces, seasonings, you name it. They've made a science out of great grilling flavor. It's more than a sauce. Whether you're cooking sliders, dogs, steak, or chicken, Deadeye has the explosive flavor needed to make every dish delicious. Try a splash of their sweet and smoky original recipe or turn up the heat with their Magnum Edition barbecue sauce. Both flavors are available in seasonings as well as sauces. So pick your favorite and prepare your taste buds for an unforgettable eating experience. Deadeye Premium Barbecue products are available at Fairway, Hy-Vee, Amazon, or at DeadeyeBBQ.com. Hello and welcome to Culture Check Harry Potter, a Tailgate Society podcast. Please check the TailgateSociety.com and subscribe to Tailgate Society podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts. I'm Arnold Woods. I'm joined by Emily Cornell. Emily, what's up? What's going on? You know, just continuing to quarantine and consume all the content. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm I'm the same. I'm I'm staying safe, staying home, washing my hands, wiping down things when I do have to go out and taking care of these two little ones that I have. So very um very vigilant in terms of cleanliness, I suppose, more so. Have you have you noticed like if you're washing your hands more, I'm getting like kind of ashy? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I like I, keep I, hand lotion at my desk. Like I never have before. And yeah. It's real. Got to keep that on deck. Got to keep that on deck. It's important. Absolutely. <laughs> um, so this week, more Harry Potter. Yes. Feeling excited about it. I am too. I'm, I have a lot of things that I want to discuss and I, there's a lot of stuff that I want to hear your opinion on. So I'm very excited about, uh, today's episode maybe you can kind of enlighten our listeners about what we're going to be talking about yeah so we're going to talk about side characters um in the series uh there will be spoilers so if you have not read the series or watched the movies or you do not like spoilers um it was really nice of you to listen to the first 30 seconds of this we appreciate it um and sorry that you have to turn it off uh, as we start talking about the characters and kind of their role in the overarching story of Harry Potter. And, um, you know, no character that is a side character is too small in this world. Like, so true. So true. She, J.K. Rowling does a very good job. Like we talked about this where she just brings characters back into the story. So um, really excited to dig into that. What I have a question for you, I guess, right off the top, when we talk about side characters, like how did you determine who's a side character and who isn't? Is anyone like that's not Harry, Ron, or Hermione a, a, a side character, or like how do you de- how do you determine that? I th- so I was thinking about this where I was like, okay, who are characters who like are obviously significant and like I just said like every character is significant but like who did I enjoy that was not Harry Ron and Hermione or Dumbledore or um I wouldn't say enjoy Voldemort but I would not consider Voldemort a side character (laughs) so yeah um and then like so like given like taking all those people off the table obviously the story is like about them so then like all right is Bellatrix Lestrange a side character well yes so what makes that how how did I come to that and was just like hmm she's a significant part of the story but like 
any of her conflicts don't necessarily move the story for Harry forward. Like her and Sirius Black in book five, like when she kills him, like that does impact Harry, but um, she was just not as crucial. Like any Death Eater could have done that. Not any character could be Harry Potter. So. I think you make a good point with Bellatrix. I think she's really the ideal candidate in terms of side characters where she is, she looms large over several books. She's mentioned a lot. She gets a lot of, um, she gets significant, not screen time, but you know, the equivalent of that in the books where you we're spending time with her from her or other people's perspectives and she's in the room, but she's not on the level of a Dumbledore or McGonagall or someone who's, you know, at Hogwarts, who's interacting with the trio a lot, who is around yeah. them a lot. So she's kind of, I, 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 I kind of like mentally put characters in the tier, like into tiers. So like, this is a tier one character, you know, Harry, Ron, Hermione, Dumbledore. Um, uh, who else? Like McGonagall is kind of like Hagrid. Those, Hagrid. Yeah. Like those are tier one characters. And then you get into two, tier two characters. Like I would, I would consider Bellatrix like a tier two character. Yeah. Like that type of thing. That's kind yeah. of how I did it. And there are so many like tier two characters that that's, and I, I like the way you kind of tear it out because uh, it's appropriate. Like they aren't any less important, but like they are not the focus. So um, yeah, that's, I think a good way to kind of help the listeners hear how this decision was made for like the side characters that we did choose. Um, Mm -hmm. So who are your top three side characters of the Harry Potter series? So my top three, I'm going to go, I'll start with number three and we'll have a little bit of discussion and um, I'll just kind of keep going forward, but I want us to kind of, talk about these each separately i'm, I'm going to start with number three for me is remus lupin okay lupin his first appearance in the series is prisoner of azkaban the third book and lupin is a really popular character i would say i have a friend oh, yeah. who is a big harry potter fan whose her dog is named remus one of her dogs is named remus um mm-hmm. really popular um kind of i would i would say a fan favorite character would you say that maybe yeah, he's a very likable character, both in the books and in the movies. Like, it's hard to make a case against Remus Lupin. Like, he's just a good dude. He is, He's the yeah. voice of reason with his friends when he's younger, and we see that. And he's, like, the voice of reason as an adult. Um, right. He, just a good guy. He is, yeah. And I think that there are so many... It's, there's so many quirky characters... Yeah. In the series, there's so many characters who have like good hearts or, or whatever, but they have these quirks that kind of um, separate you from them. They you kind of they keep you at arm's length a little bit. I think of someone like Hagrid. Hagrid is a great character full of, you know, love for the students, specifically the trio and trustworthy. But he also has this quirk, which is this. I would say unreasonable love for dangerous creatures. Yes. And it, it, it kind of keeps you at arm's length in that way. 
And Lupin isn't like that. So Lupin, I mean, we'll get into what makes him, I, I wouldn't call this a quirk, him being a werewolf, but we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit. But Lupin is someone who is pretty solidly a straightforward, adult, authoritative figure, responsible, who cares about his students and cares about the safety of the magical world and who is um, really pivotal in the, in the fight against Voldemort. In my opinion, Lupin is like the kind of the first really tortured character in the series. And, and I think about how he's introduced. He's introduced on the Hogwarts Express in the third book, and you don't get his name at first, but um, the trio get into, is it the trio or is this when? It yeah, is the trio. It's the trio. Yeah. This, this is before Ron and Hermione become prefects. So they're in their compartment on the Hogwarts Express, and he's described as like this shabbily dressed kind of, you know, thin, pale character who's sitting in the corner asleep. And he's kind of beaten down. And just from the way that he's described, before we know who he is or what his name is, he's he's presented to us as a person who it would appear has had a rough go in life. And so he's introduced to us that way. And then the dementors come and he kind of springs into ap- action. He snaps into action and you know, the compartment goes dark. I haven't read this in a while, but I'm just, I'm thinking about yeah. how the compartment goes dark and you hear him, he's like quiet and everyone like kind of shuts up because no one knows what's going on. And he's, you know, that's kind of, that encapsulate, encapsulates him where he's this world weary person and he's, um, you know, he's tired all the time and he's, you know, battling this you know inner struggle with being a werewolf and and the things that come with that but when it's time for action and when it's time to protect people when it's time to um you know give down to business he's he's readily available he's on guard he's sharp and he's he's ready to fight in that way yeah he I like that you say that he's like ready to fight, but he, that's like definitely not his go-to. Like he's very much, he tries to be a peacemaker throughout. I mean, like in that, when they first meet him and like, obviously there's Dementors, like there, there isn't like a let's negotiate, but like outside of that, um, you see him just be very like reasonable and like, we can like talk through this. Yeah, he's very much an instructor. Yeah. Right. And he's he's one of the better teachers that yeah. we see of any subject. So he's the defense against the dark arts instructor instructor in that book. And that's the big thing about how the that position is cursed by Voldemort when he was refused the job by Dumbledore, which we see in the sixth book. But um, you know, the bar is pretty low in terms of the best teachers in that in that uh in that yeah. subject. But he's he's very clearly like we see him. He's a he's a mentor to Harry, and we see him teach Harry the Patronus spell and everything like that. But he it's we see him interacting with the rest of the students as well. He's he's one of the rare teachers that doesn't really show favoritism based yeah. on house, yeah. and he's he's a very clear instructor and cares about teaching in a way that we rarely see from some of the other teachers. And so that really kind of endears him to me 
And I think about our last discussion about Snape, right? Yeah. How Snape was, Snape's relationship with Harry was informed by Snape's relationship with his, with Harry's father and how he disliked him. And then he kind of transferred that over to Harry. And that goes against what Lupin believes and how he operates. And we see that even at the end of the book where it's revealed that Sirius Black is a good guy and not on Voldemort's side, but Snape is so blinded by his hatred of Sirius because of how he treated him when they were children. There's a line where Lupin's like, are you like, are you going to let a schoolyard grudge let you send an innocent man to Azkaban? So Lupin, like you said, like he's very clear headed. He's very level headed. And that's something that kind of attracts me to him as a character, someone who's really, in this world where we see people who have these highs and lows. And we'll talk about this with another character later on, but he's very even keeled. And then also when we talk about him being tortured, like him being a werewolf, he's our, in our, in in a lot of ways, he's our introduction to how wizarding, wizarding society sort of separates people by class. And his identity as a werewolf, he's on the margins. He's a marginalized character. People do not like werewolves let alone wanting a werewolf to teach their children. And then that information is used against him by Snape, even though Snape helps him by conjuring the Wolfsbane potion. So he doesn't have to transform it every full moon, but that becomes a, a, a recurring theme in the books. Um, the things that separate wizards in their society, similar to how the things that separate us in our society, right? Like it's, it's kind of, translated through Lupin in terms of his identity as a werewolf and and the struggles that he has to endure because of that. And it's interesting that, so you, you talked about how Snape obviously is awful to Harry and like, because of James Potter, and then like, he's not willing to listen to Sirius, but he, and not in that moment at the end of Prisoner of Azkaban, where like Lupin tries to explain to him, like, no, like he he didn't do it. Um, it Snape, while he's like kind of short with Lupin, he doesn't seem to have like that same hate that he directs towards Harry and Sirius. So, yeah, I think that Snape just has a begrudging respect for Lupin in a way that he doesn't for a lot of people, frankly, that he comes into contact with in the series. And he's, you know, certainly not anyone else that Lupin was friends with when they were kids. Yeah. So, like, you know, didn't really respect Sirius at all, didn't respect James, and certainly not Pettigrew. But Lupin is such, and I, I think that this really speaks to his maturity and his level-headedness, that Lupin is not someone that Snape shows, like, an open disdain for in the way that he does Sirius. Like, the Sirius-Snape relationship is way different than the serious Lupin relationship. Yeah. So I, we talked about how Harry learns how to conjure a Patronus from Lupin. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Lupin dominates the book in a way that other side characters don't really dominate the other books. So I think of like, we talked about Goblet of Fire and a character like Rita Skeeter, like Rita Skeeter is a big, big part of Goblet of Fire. She has a a pivotal role in it and she comes up in the, in the book a lot, but like 
she doesn't dominate that book in the way that Lupin dominates Prisoner of Azkaban. That's Lupin true. Is, Lupin is like a, a, one of the main characters of that book. Yeah. And he becomes this like mentor father figure to Harry. Um, not only because he was friends with Harry's dad, but Lupin and Harry's relationship is separate from the relationship that Lupin had with James. Like they have their own distinct types of relationships. Yes. And so also, but, but thinking of Lupin and Sirius and James and Pettigrew, like the mar- the Marauders are really our first real look into Hogwarts, like recent history of students, the generation that came before Harry's generation. Yeah. And that comes up later in the books as well, but that's kind of our, our pathway, our entryway into looking at that. I have a, I, when we were prepping this, I was thinking about looking at Lupin in a new way. And so I have sort of this retroactive take on Lupin and I'm, I'm thinking about how he struggles throughout the book, throughout Prisoner of Azkaban to sort of come to grips with how a person who he knew or he thought that he knew and loved and serious could potentially be like this agent for Voldemort mm-hmm. and how that kind of might've haunted him throughout the book. So there's a, there's a moment in the book where Harry is asking him about Sirius when Harry finds out that he and Sirius knew each other and he and his dad knew each other and that they were best friends and things like that. And he says something to to Lupin where he's like, you knew him like asking about Sirius. And he's like, I thought I knew who he was. Right. Mm -hmm. So what do you, what do you, what's your opinion on that in terms of like Lupin kind of looking back throughout the book, kind of just like mentally, maybe like, looking back and because we we know that at the end he hasn't been helping Sirius the entire time right like yeah. he thought that Sirius was guilty too so what do you what are your thoughts on that so i think that the conflict that lupin is dealing with throughout the book because i'm sure like the in his in his life his made up life um up until that point he hadn't really he'd had years to like process through what he thought had happened with Sirius and like the potters and so I think that like it opened up like some old wounds in addition to just like having the stress of like he thought he knew who Sirius was he thought that Sirius was like James' best friend and like willing to do anything for him and he is like this person who like I knew in my childhood like all right maybe I had like rose-colored glasses on um and then like when he's talking to Harry like volunteering that information when he's just like yeah like I thought I knew who this person was like we knew each other um because he understood like Lupin being Lupin where he's like is very like thoughtful as a character I think that's why he's very like he stays very level-headed in terms of like in in any of his interactions with people like he does try to just be like okay well here are the facts but like that's a t- like the serious issue is he's like well I don't I don't know like I thought I had the facts I thought I knew this person and then like it turned out like I didn't and they ruined all these things had a couple years to kind of sift through that deal with it okay now 
we're at this new stage in life and he's a professor and he's like not only dealing with okay this person who I thought I knew it could be a murderer but like I'm back in this place where we used to be together like this is where we have like our very happy memories together yeah that's such a good point and the point you make about how thoughtful he is and how he's presented with facts and how that's what he works off of. He's not a really emotional character. No. Like we see him get emotional a little bit in Deathly Hallows when, when he and Harry go at it a little bit. But even that comes from a place of logic, right? Like he and yes. Harry go at it because Harry feels like, like Lupin asked to go with them to hunt for Horcruxes. And Harry asks why, and it's revealed that he and Tonks are going to have a baby. And... Harry gets, you know, mad at him for that and dissuades him from coming because he doesn't want him to abandon his child. But yeah. from Lu- from Lupin's perspective, like it's a logical thing, right? Werewolves yeah. are it's going to be a werewolf baby. Werewolves are on one of the lowest rungs of society in the wizarding world, and he doesn't want to condemn his child to that. So even that argument is is stems from a place of logic on. Yeah on Lupin's end. And I think about in, in the sixth book where he and Harry, you know, Harry is so single-minded that Snape is working for Voldemort, not yeah. understanding, not realizing, and really no one really understands and realizing, understands or realizes Snape's double mission that he's doing. But Lupin is operating from a logical place of Dumbledore trusts him. So we have to trust him. And so they have this back and forth about it. And Harry is just throwing these reasons at Lupin as to why and possibly these scenarios in which Snape would turn on them. And Lupin is just like, you hate him because he hated your father. Like you've, and Sirius hates him. Like you've, in, you've inherited this grudge. And yeah. so I understand why you're determined to hate him, but you have to look at it logically. Like that's the type of character that Lupin is. Yeah. He's, you know, he has really, my, my final thoughts on Lupin are that he just has a really fully realized arc where he comes in and Azkaban as this beaten down character, but who is also strong willed and, you know, defends his students. And he has this secret that he keeps from them, but it's revealed his werewolf, um, his condition as a werewolf and everything like that. But he, he goes out of that from being removed from school because of that, but he becomes a member of the Order of the Phoenix and he spies for Dumbledore with werewolves and he's a little bit resentful of that, but he still does it because it's his mission. Mm-hmm. And then he has the fallout with Harry that we that we just discussed, but then he makes amends with Harry after he becomes a father and he ends up um, dying in the Battle of Hogwarts. But he has this arc where he goes from this minor quote-unquote character to having a really full influence on the rest of the series mm-hmm. and becoming a, a more fully realized person and his personality I, I i made these character picks off of personality really if i'm honest with myself and his personality <laughs> is one that i that really lends itself towards me so do you have any final thoughts on lupin um i think you covered a lot of just him as a character and like what he means to the series. And um, I liked that you pointed out in Prisoner of Azkaban, he kind of is like a main character in that. And yeah, yeah, he has like one of the more interesting stories that really shows, like you said, the, the discrimination within the wizarding world. 
Yeah, for sure. It's uh, he's such a he's such a character that is like we said he's a fan favorite. Mm-hmm. But he's just such a he's such a well written character. Yeah, it's a it's just a really rich character, and I I just really appreciate that. Do we do you want to go into your number three? You want to do that next? Yeah. So it's interesting that you picked uh, Remus Lupin. I picked Sirius Black. Um, there you go. <laughs> I, his first appearance is in Prisoners, Prisoner of Azkaban, but um, he's first mentioned in like the first chapter of the Sorcerer's Stone. And like we've talked about how like no character is just like haphazardly placed in this story. Uh, J.K. Rowling knows what she's doing. And um, when he's talked about in the Sorcerer's Stone, it's not known that what people think he did in Prisoner of Azkaban has happened. People still think he's a good guy. He still is a good guy. He never ended up like helping Voldemort as we find out at the end of Prisoner of Azkaban. And um, just like growing up and reading Harry Potter, I really liked Sirius Black as a character. Um, He was like lighthearted enough and like he wasn't like a serious authority figure for Harry. Like Harry respected him and he was Harry's godfather and Harry loved him. Um, and it was just like such a great relationship that you see. And it probably goes back to The Goblet of Fire being my favorite book. That's like the book where there's the most development of like Harry and Sirius's relationship where Harry's still like, oh, I wonder what Sirius thinks about this. Um, whereas in like Order of the Phoenix, Harry's pissed for like very valid reasons. And like Sirius is trying to help him go through it but he's also kind of um dealing with some stress on his end so um but as a character I think that he did not get enough time in the series um there's there are plenty of times in like the flashbacks where Sirius is there and he like is bullying Snape which like hmm, who Snape became as an adult he maybe deserves to be bullied. Um, but, um, and I think like one of his greatest lines is, uh, if you want to know what a man's like, take a good look at how he treats his inferiors, not his equals. And like, that's a quote from the books that people like quote a lot. And he says it to Ron in Goblet of Fire when they're trying to like, Harry, Ron and Hermione have gone to go talk to him. And they're talking about uh, Barty Crouch's house elf, Winky, and how he's, like, very rude to his house elf and, like, fired her because of the dark mark. And Hermione is, like, on her, we need to save the house elves. <laughs> and um, and Ron is, like, pretty whatever Hermione about it. But Sirius makes a very valid point, like, that can be seen throughout, like, the entire series that, like, how characters are treating their inferiors because in the wizarding world, their hierarchy is like what we've talked about with like Remus Lupin, where he's a werewolf. So he's kind of like lower on the totem pole and house elves are even lower on that. Um, That's definitely how discrimination is being like highlighted in the story and like the empathy that like Hermione is bringing up, like, no, we need to be better. (laughs) We need to treat people well. And like to see serious say something like that when he turns around and it's just like the worst to Snape for good reason because Snape is the worst 
Um, and so, um, just as a character, I enjoy Sirius, I enjoy his storyline, and um, I think he and Remus Lupin have, like, a very good friendship. Like, once everything's cleared up, like, they definitely work to, like, mend that relationship. You make so many good points. Um, the first of which I was just thinking about, and when you say, like, he's only in three books... Yeah. Like he's in he, only really in three books. Well, wait, three, four. Yeah. Three, four and five. But he really is only interacting with Harry in four and five. Right. And so it's, it's going back to what we said, like maybe two or three podcasts ago, just the, the concept of that book of Prisoner of Azkaban and how genius it is for the series to take a detour from the main bad guy into Sirius Black and then at the end of the book it's revealed that he's not a bad guy like that's just so genius to me yeah but he's yeah we I'm 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 really glad that you pointed out Goblet of Fire because you you made me think of something that I haven't really thought about in terms of that being the book where he has the most development with Harry and I think about in the movie version where he's only really in one scene yeah. And what's kind of sucks, he's in, that scene where he's in the fireplace. Yeah. And what we don't what we don't get in the movie that's in the books is like the entire development where Harry's writing him letters mm-hmm. about his scar hurting and how he's having these visions and you know this isn't something that he wants to share with anyone else but it's suggested to him by Ron and Hermione will, you know, write to Sirius. And Sirius kind of walking him through this connection that he has with Voldemort and Sirius communicating with Dumbledore. And, you know, he's on the run during this time, but that, that book really shows Sirius's investment in Harry and the links through the, the links that he's willing to go through to communicate with Harry and to help Harry. And not, it's not, it's not completely altruistic because he's also wanting to interact with people in society yeah, And so another thing that's so brilliant about that is the way that J.K. Rowling really takes his arc to its logical conclusion. And when I say that, I mean, this is a guy who spends most of his adult life on the run mm-hmm. in the form of a dog. He is desperate for, he's, he's desperate for companionship, for communication, for interaction with people. And you see by the order of the Phoenix, it's starting to take a toll on him. It's starting to take a mental toll on him. And he's starting to make rash, rash decisions and take unnecessary risks. Yeah. And you mentioned about that line that he has in Goblet of Fire in terms of treating house elves. And I, I'm, I truly believe that he meant that. Yeah. But you look at how he treated creature. Yeah. And that's, that's informed by the way that he grew up where a creature loved his brother, but hated him because he wasn't a typical um, member of the black family. You know, he wasn't a Slytherin. He was, you know, all these, all these contextual things lead to now he's an adult. And not only does he have this bad history with creature, but he also is trapped inside his childhood home that he hates. And so that leads him to, you know, treat creature badly which makes Creature willing to lie to him. And that leads to him going to the ministry 
um, or making, um, making Harry think that he's there and when he's, or making Harry think that he's at the ministry when he's not and all this other stuff. So it's, it's the way that he's written, like it all makes sense. It, it makes sense that despite his belief that people should treat house elves with respect and dignity, that this one house elf that he doesn't have a good relationship with, he treats like shit. And yeah. it leads to dire consequences for everyone. So yeah. yeah, another just like really richly written character. Oh yeah. And like you pointed out how in like Order of the Phoenix, he starts to kind of be antsy because he is basically trapped in his house. And that's after spending 12 years trapped at Azkaban. So like basically he missed out on his young adult life because he was in prison and now he is he has freedom quote unquote and can't like go anywhere and if he does go anywhere he has to be in dog form like he i think behaves in a way that like it makes sense like she she makes him make sense as a character like why he behaves the way he does given like what has happened to him um like he still can like joke around with Harry and like work on that relationship. But at the same time, he is like an adult who's like, wow, I cannot live my life a certain way. Like with the freedom that like I see everyone else living and um, yeah, he has Remus, but he like feels very close to Harry because Harry is like James, who was his best friend. Yeah. I think that it's also, I think you make a really good point in terms of the way that he's acting and like the unnecessary risks he starts to take to me. Like it's, it's kind of, it's a, it's a way that we can see the plans and the scheming of Dumbledore and the effect that they have on people who aren't hairy. Yeah. So last episode we talked about in Deathly Hallows, like you asked me about how, you know, is it fair what Dumbledore put Harry through, basically, in terms of these schemes and not telling him certain information? It's the same with these other people. And I mentioned it a little bit earlier with Lupin, where he has Lupin spy for him for werewolves and how Lupin is a little bit resentful for him, resentful of him because of that. But it's also with Sirius like Sirius is confined to his house and his house is the headquarters of the order of the Phoenix because of Dumbledore. Yeah. Dumbledore put that all in the place. Dumbledore is like, you can't go anywhere. And he's Dumbledore is the one who takes the credit for, or, you know, credit quote unquote for, or the blame really for, um, Sirius's death instead of Harry, because, you know, he acknowledges Sirius is a person who, wants adventure and who wants to help and who wants to be out there on the front lines. And I yeah. basically had him caged up. So he's really um, a good example of the way that Dumbledore's actions affect other people seriously outside of just Harry. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, a very good point. Um, I do have a question given how you feel about Snape. Um, do you feel that it was unfair for Sirius to like be how he was behaving towards Snape. Do you feel like Sirius could have taken like the route that Lupin did where he was just like, we're not kids. Like people's lives are at stake. You need right. to get it together. Um, and do you think it was fair for Sirius to kind of harbor that 
that frustration that like he has had forever. Yeah. I think to me, it it just kind of shows the differences in their personalities, the differences between um, Sirius and Lupin. Yeah. Where Lupin was always kind of the more mature one, like you said, the more mature one of their group. And so that translates into him as an adult being more able to let the past be the past and move forward as adults. Like Lupin treats Snape as an adult, like a colleague, like he's fully trying to move past how it was when they were kids. Snape isn't willing to do that, neither is Sirius. And we see Sirius as a young wizard, arrogant, you know, puffed up chest, looking for a fight. Like that's kind of his, that's kind of his personality and he's not willing to let go of that. And so he's really similar to Snape in that way, letting things from the past inform and dictate his behavior with people in the present. And so, yeah, it's, it's, I, I would say that he was unfair to Snape um, as an adult. They were both unfair to each other, really. Like, neither one of them could really grow up to the level that they needed to. I guess you can make the argument that Sirius did more than Snape, but realistically, they both were letting petty childhood um, disagreements and arguments and animosity cloud their their judgment as adults, which is unfortunate. And it led to um, Sirius's death ultimately. Man, still great character though. <laughs> he is. Yeah, definitely. He's still, um, so that one of the most important people in Harry's life. Yeah. Like I would say like top three, if you talk about like top three important people in his life, um, if you count his parents as one, um, uh, you know, I would say his parents and then Dumbledore and then Sirius. And then yeah. maybe, you know, I, I, adults at least. So he's just a, in a, a supremely important character. And like you said, it's it's hard to believe that he's only in three books. Pretty crazy. Yeah, because yeah. he just like, we hear about him early on and we hear about him like until the end. And um, he definitely not a, main character but definitely contributes so much um to the series at least in our opinion and that's really what matters right now um, exactly we're the ones with the microphones and the exactly the so. so who is your number two side character i went back and forth like i had my number three and i had my number one pretty much set but i was trying to figure out who i wanted to do with number two and number two i really this is a character that i We'll we'll get into this more, but I, this is really a character who I, I wish we had had more time with, and she's a pretty pretty big character. But I think when you actually like go through the books and read them again, like it's definitely someone that I wish that we had more time with. And it's Jenny Weasley. Um, Jenny's first appearance is in Sorcerer's Stone right in the beginning, and this, she has another great character arc where she starts as this um, scared, you know, youngest sibling of the Weasleys, and she's you know, afraid to be around Harry a lot of the time that has this, you know, um, puppy love crush on Harry right mm-hmm. from the beginning. And, you know, in a lot of ways we think of Ron as like the outcast of his siblings. He's presented to us in that way. Yeah. But I think about how like Jenny must feel. She's the only girl. She's the youngest. Um, I, I would imagine that her perspective of her siblings, she certainly feels like an outcast. Yeah. 
And so she starts off as this, you know, as the youngest sibling and, and everything like that. And in Chamber of Secrets, she's basically the damsel in distress mm-hmm. that has to be saved. She gets saved at the end of the book by Harry. And throughout the book, like she puts her her insecurities and her fears into this into this diary, which ends up being the Horcrux. But she goes from someone who is young and um, not confident and doesn't have a lot of agency. She goes from that to like a popular girl in school, basically. She's Mm -hmm. really well liked by her classmates. She becomes a great Quidditch player and she's a member of Dumbledore's army and one of the members who goes to the ministry in order of the Phoenix on the, on the rescue mission. Um, she becomes this really fully realized strong character. Yeah. And one of my favorite moments in the entire book series is in order of the Phoenix, which we know is famous for, you know, the Harry angst book and he's being <laughs> angsty at this point about, um, he's feeling like he's being possessed by Voldemort. Like he's seeing Voldemort's thoughts because of their psychic connection. And he sees things like, you know, Arthur Weasley being, um, being eaten or being attacked by this, by the snake. But, um, you know, he's, he's concerned that he, that Voldemort is possessing him somehow from, you know, hundreds of miles away. And Jenny is like, it doesn't work like that. Right. And Harry kind of snaps on her. And she snaps back and is like, I'm the only one you know that's been possessed by Voldemort. And Harry's kind of like, oh, damn, I forgot. And he's, she's like, yeah, clearly you did. Get your head out of your ass. <laughs> but like that moment is just really great because she's really, you know, that was such a traumatic experience for her. And she's yeah. like, you know, 11 or 12 when that happened or whatever. And she's able to not over not only overcome that but really use that as a tool to be like you know you need to wake up and you need to like realize that this is affecting more people than you more people than you have been affected by the shitty things that Voldemort does yeah so she really snaps him out of that in a, in a way and that's just kind of a, if you if you think about her in the beginning where she can't even speak to him to now she's like setting him straight i just think that that's like i think that's really dope yeah, she definitely grows a lot as a character. And she could have, like, after Chamber of Secrets, like you said, she was the damsel in distress. She had that, like, she had her, like, you know, deepest fears and anxieties, like, exploited, essentially, by Voldemort. And, like, she could have just, like, the following year, like, fallen apart. Like, throughout the series, like, Ginny Weasley very easily could have been a character who is not resilient and, like, not strong because of, like, Voldemort having such a a big part in like her first year at Hogwarts um but she like you said became very popular she like was really good at Quidditch she ends up dating Dean who is in Harry and Ron's year who's like one of their good friends so she like kind of becomes part of like their life more than she like could have if she only hung out with people from her year and um she she definitely grows so much as a character throughout the series, um, like you pointed out, in like from being very timid to being like a very strong force. She's definitely the one person in the grade behind them 
that is i mean she becomes kind of like the fourth member in a, in a yeah. lot of ways by the end of the series like she's really around the trio a lot and it's interesting that it's her and not someone else from their year it's yeah. it, and, and part of that is because she's ron's sister obviously and he's so close with the family they're all so close with the family but like she's mm-hmm. just she in the i think about like the fifth sixth seventh books like she's really really right there with the trio in terms of time spent with them and um, investment in their lives. Like they, they kind of become this, this unit yeah. separate from just the three of them. It kind of becomes the four of them in a lot of ways. Yeah. Agreed. I, I, I mentioned how I kind of wanted more from her. Mm-hmm. Like that's why I classify her as a, as a side character. And I think about when you, you mentioned how good she is at Quidditch and there's a, a moment, I think in the sixth book where, Ron is just like, you know, he asked her, like, how did you get so good at Quidditch? And Hermione's like, she's been sealing your rooms to -hmm. practice Quidditch for a long time. And that's something that, you know, we don't see. We don't get that perspective as the readers, but that exists in the world. And so there's a lot of that type of thing that I wish we had gotten more from her. Um, Yeah. And like her, just her friendship with Hermione, like Hermione is very much in the know about Ginny. Yeah. And it's like maybe because they're both, girls and like Harry and Ron just are not they don't always have it together when it comes to the emotions and so like it would just make sense that Ginny and Hermione who are Hermione and Harry are always with the Weasleys towards the end of the summer that they like build this relationship but it's like a very unspoken thing that's happening like it's not talked about that Ginny and Hermione are becoming very close that's a good point that is a good point like the Ginny Hermione relationship is just it's kind of it's used as a way to to show how like inept Harry and Ron yeah. are at a lot yeah. of things. But like obviously they would have to have like a deep relationship for like Hermione to always have like this information to share about Ginny. Exactly. Yeah. And like they it's not I guess your attention's not drawn to that a lot throughout the series. But when you're, like, thinking about it, like, they would have to be good friends for how much time they have to spend together for, like, having to deal with, like, the crap that Harry and Ron, whether it's, like, the good things or bad, like, they still have to deal with them. Um, they would have to have a pretty good relationship. For sure. It's, it, that's such a good point that you make. And it's really cool to see how, you know, Hermione has this relationship separate from Ron yeah. and Harry with yeah. this other like really close, really good friend that she's able to bond with. And, you know, it, I think that her way of thinking is informed by her, by her relationship with Jen, with Jenny in ways that it's not with her relationship with um, Ron and Harry. Yeah. I did have, a, I have a question for you though, in terms of, so Jenny, especially in the later books, um, really starting with the sixth book, I would say mm-hmm. um, the, the Jenny Harry relationship comes out like what what are your thoughts on on the jenny harry um romance um i think it's fine i guess like i um i should think about how i thought about it when i like read the series for the first time they end up together surprise surprise it was a surprise to me and a surprise to nobody else um and like it fit just based off of like the traumatic events of their lives as young people, um, they both have experienced things that, like, 
it'd be hard to explain to a different person. Like we see it when Harry and Cho were like kind of dating and like Cho is like, yeah, Cedric died, but Harry had to watch Cedric die. It wasn't just that Cho was like, well, I was dating Cedric and he died. Harry's like, I was holding his, like I was with him. Um, And so, and he, and when he's like, you know, Voldemort's back and like, I think that, um, all of his trials, because even if Ginny has not been there with Harry, Ron, and Hermione through all of their adventures and like all of the, the things causing them stress related to Voldemort, she hears about it secondhand. Like she hangs out with Harry and Ron and Hermione and like, or, you know, Ron being her brother and they're both the youngest, like they talk, Hermione and Ginny talk. So like Ginny understands her and the um in Tom Riddle's diary in the Chamber of Secrets, like she understands being connected to Voldemort like that. So like I think I guess it does make sense that Harry and Ginny, they're like kindred spirits, but like just by um all the events going on around them. I think if like Harry Potter was not Harry Potter and he was just Ron's friend and like it was whatever, I don't think that they would have ended up together and it would have made sense really yeah like if like when she dates dean or if she had dated like seamus or neville it would have been like i don't know that doesn't seem right yeah okay yeah i understand that yeah what about you what are your thoughts on their relationship i i agree with you i think that it makes sense i think that honestly and this maybe this is a separate episode i think that harry ending up with several people makes sense interesting Um, like what what people uh, I think that Harry and Hermione made sense. I think it would have made sense for them to end up together. Okay. I mean, in the in the sense of like, not I, I, let me let me rephrase, not end up together. I don't think it's realistic that, and like twelve of these people end up married, like yeah. you know, and you, you've known each other since like you know second grade or whatever. Like that's not realistic. But yeah, I think it would have been realistic for Harry and Hermione to consider dating. I'll put it that way. Okay. I think it would have been realistic for. Um, Harry and Cho to I mean Harry and Cho had like a like a two week run like it's rough yeah. if that you know um, um, Harry and my number one character I think would have made sense and we'll we'll get into that a little bit later. yeah so huh. but um yeah I think that my, my only thing with the Jenny Harry thing is that I wish it had been kind of hinted at earlier it's not really hinted at at all until the sixth book and it kind of just it's in the way that like Ron and Ron and Hermione, I feel like are hinted at more throughout the books for a longer period than Ginny and Harry are. I think that Henny, Ginny and Harry are kind of like, it's kind of sprung on us in the sixth book that all of a sudden Harry has these feelings for Ginny and he gets jealous when he sees her like dating all these people. And he's like trying to reckon with what those feelings mean. Is it, you know, is he just protective of her as a little sister type or is he actually feeling her like all those types of things? Like, I get that, but I yeah. think that that would have been better introduced in, like, the fourth or fifth book than, you know, the first half of the sixth book. And then by the end of the sixth book, they're, like, in love with each other. I don't know. Yeah. I see what you mean. Like, I get that. I just feel like he's so distracted by Cho. <laughs> yeah. So I'm just like, I don't know if he would have thought about Ginny like that before then. That's true. And Cho is really, like, the only other girl in the series that he shows any sort of significant interest in yeah i feel like so i agree with him 
yeah, definitely being distracted by Chell Chang. What's <laughs> um? Why don't we? Do you want to get into your number two character? Yeah. So my number two character was going to be a, a different character that I'll like get into once we get to number ones. But um, I ended up picking Mr. Ollivander because we we meet him in book one in Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Harry goes to get a wand and like. Mr. Ollivander is, like, kind of a hippie. Like, he's talking about the wands and, like, you know, basically the souls of each wand, like, what's in it. He knows everything about each wand, what it's made of, like, all the different components, the type of wood, the magical being that, like, part of it is part in it, like a dragon heart string or, like, a feather from a phoenix. So he is so... And he, like has a moment with the wands. Like, he's just so into, like, what he's doing. Um, He's a very quirky character. But, like, everyone just kind of knows it, and they just accept it. And um, he's so knowledgeable. And the wands, like, it might seem very simple. And I think, like, him being introduced as a character just seems like another, like, very quirky character in this um, story. And, I mean, obviously, everyone has to go get their wand from him. Um, and he remembers every wand that he sells and the wands pick the wizard and he like he just remembers all of it it's so impressive it it's like the person who we all know that just like knows everyone's life story where you're like how do you know this person like how do you remember all this stuff and he kind of is like that where you're like and for Harry because he's like oh like he knows all this like I think that's just a good thing for him to like interact with like someone who like remembers things about him like it seems like a very minimal thing but when you've been abused for the last 11 years of your life like it's kind of nice when someone like takes a very unique interest in this um and he goes through all these different wands when he's like picking one and um he comes back in the deathly hollows mr Ollivander, because voldemort's torturing him for information and harry and ron hermione they end up saving him and um it's good but um he just ends up being i don't i wouldn't say he's like a crucial side character but he is so likable and so he he just like knows the lore of this world that we're all learning about with harry i'm so glad you picked him he sets an interesting character and like what you just said really is really big with me because we we learn about the wand lore stuff in Deathly Hallows and he mm-hmm. sets like a wealth of information about it and we mm-hmm. we get that a little bit in Sorcerer's Stone. But like the wand lore shit, I love that. Like I love that shit. It's so good. Like it's so in depth and so you know it's so fully realized. Like yeah. it's 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 a really great like the writing that Rowling does surrounding wands is this really, really, um, it's just so dope. And him talking about like the different feathers, like the different, not just feathers, but like the different things from a magical creature that go into wands. And then this is how a wand is supposed to feel in your hand. And the wands yeah. use the wizard. And um, this is how wands react when one wand has been won by a different wizard and this and that. And, you know, it's, it, it's this wand won't really work for you because it doesn't belong to you. And like all of that stuff is just so um, captivating to me. And I'm, I get so into that stuff 
and he's a really a really great example of a character who is who's a minor character like a truly minor character yeah right like he's a minor character that has a really big impact on the story especially the end game of the story um harry's knowledge of wands largely is from Ollivander, and that's what largely aids him in his win over Voldemort yeah like it's it's so crucial and, and it's so pivotal and I think about the juxtaposition of the conversation that Harry and Ollivander have in Sorcerer's Stone versus the conversation they have in Deathly Hallows, where in Sorcerer's Stone, Harry's a child and he comes into the shop and Ollivander is the adult who teaches him about wands and who is introducing him into the magical world. And he is this wealth of knowledge and Harry is just, you know, Harry knows nothing. He's like us. Like he, has, he knows nothing about this world. He has no frame of reference. Like Ollivander is so critical in introducing him into the world. And so you cut to the seventh book where Harry and Ron and Hermione rescue these people from Malfoy Manor, including Ollivander. And they're at show cottage with Bill and Floor. And Harry's like, I need to interview him. I need to talk to him. Mm-hmm. And so they have this conversation about the Elder Wand and what do you know about it? What do you know about the history? What do you know about the Peveril family? All this stuff. And, and like, Harry is the adult in this situation. Harry is grilling him about um, the Elder Wand and Ollivander, who is, you know, he's this old, frail man who's been tortured. And so Ollivander kind of, it's like the subversion where Ollivander takes on the role of the child. Yeah. And he's just like, you know, Ollivander has to answer these questions. It's such a it's a an, an interesting um parallel looking at those two conversations and how Harry becomes this um this man of action, this adult who is, you know, who's has this mission and he's determined to carry it out. And like now he's the one who needs the information. Ollivander is the one who's kind of like not understanding fully where this line of questioning is going and why he's asking it and all this other stuff. Yeah. Yeah, he he has a significant role that you definitely have to be paying attention while you read the first book, which I mean, like that sounds silly out loud to be like, Oh, you have to pay attention when you're reading these books, but like you really do just to see like, Oh yeah, this person is mentioned throughout the series. And then they end up being like this. They, you can see how they've changed. Like you just said, how, you know, how he, and especially how they change interacting with Harry. So like in book one, pretty much anyone who's an adult is an adult that Harry's like, I need to learn from this person, except for Snape, who's just the worst. And then by book seven, he's like telling these adults, he's, um, he's leading them. And he's still, I mean, I would consider 17 a child still, but he like has this action and this plan. And like, he, he knows what he needs from Ollivander um, in book seven. Where do you think that I'm I'm trying to think of like where Ollivander could have fit in more. Like what like maybe like like even in the sixth book, like during a flashback or something like that. Like where do you think that Ollivander could have fit in more into the story? And I don't think that he could have. Like they mentioned okay. like, oh, like they went here, they went to Ollivander's, of course, and got their want like so it becomes that thing where you think of you think of Harry's first year and like, what did he do? Like what, what is like standard procedure of all these wizarding 
children. Like, oh yeah, everyone goes to Diagon Alley and everyone goes to Flourish and Blots and like you go to Ollivanders and you get a wand and like the wand picks you. This is how it works. You maybe go get an animal, you go to Gringotts, like you go to all these places. And so we like Harry are like, oh yes, that's just part of starting as a first year at Hogwarts. And so like, yeah, they make comments about it. But, like, Harry has no reason to go back and get a wand. And because we don't even really, like, know the significance of the Elder Wand until much later, like, there there really isn't a play. Like, I guess he could have been one of the characters in the Order. Or he could have been, um, like, at the Ministry. But, like, realistically, like, that just doesn't fit who he is as a character. Like, he, he runs his wand shop and, like, that is what he does. And, like, you again, you don't really forget about him because he he's part of, like, Harry's first experiences, like, one of his first experiences in the Wizarding World. And for him to reappear, like, when he, he did reappear in Deathly Hallows and, like, he was trapped in Malfoy Manor, like, that was a surprise to me. <laughs> Probably, again, yeah. not a surprise to a lot of people, but, like, that was a character I did not anticipate coming back like that. And, um... Especially because, again, like, there aren't many other places in the series that I can even imagine him reappearing. I think that's true. I think that he's a, a character, like, when you articulate it that way, I, I completely agree with you. I think that he's a character that had a has a specific function for the plot. Mm-hmm. And he serves his function in exactly the spots where he's supposed to. And it wouldn't make sense within the framework of the story for him to like pop up randomly in these other places. Like you said, maybe the order or something like that. But, um, and I didn't understand, I wasn't expecting him to be in Malfoy Manor either. And it okay. like, you know, after, after reading it, it makes sense. Right. Where Voldemort yeah. is like still obsessed with like Juan lore and you know, he's, he, he seeks out Gregorovich too yeah. as a, as a foreign one maker. And he's just trying to get all this information he can about wands and so it makes sense that he would be it would make sense that he would kidnap Ollivander but that's not something that I would have like as I was reading I didn't think of that but it, with hindsight you know it makes sense yeah and like they even mentioned early on like oh like Ollivander's is closed I think it's even in the sixth book that they're like oh we just like haven't, yeah. we haven't seen him like yeah because Voldemort <laughs> um right so like the the breadcrumbs are there they just are not laid as much as she does it for other characters and their reappearance. But right. overall, good character. Solid dude. Who is your number is. one side character? So my number one side character is Luna Lovegood. Solid character. And it is. And this is, I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on Luna because I know that you, this is the person that you considered putting as well. Yes. Um, so Luna, first appearance in Order of the Phoenix. First of all, I've, I'll say this right off the top. It's a crime to me that she's only in three books. She's in the fifth, sixth, and seventh books. And she is such, a, such an incredibly well-written character. And she's a character who it's kind of hinted at that she's been around the entire time. Yeah. Right? She's the grade, she's the grade below. She's in, she's in Jenny's year. She's in Jenny's grade. So a year below the trio. But this is the first time in Order of the Phoenix is the first time that we that we as the as the audience are are getting to meet her. Yeah. And I love self-aware characters. 
And Luna is like the most self-aware character in the series. And I also love characters who are even keeled. Like I mentioned with Lupin, who never get too high or too low. Um, I think that I'm like, I know I'm like that. So that's why sometimes to a fault, but um, I'm drawn to that. And so that's another reason I really like Luna and something with Luna that's not really talked about enough in the discourse with fans, in my opinion, is how her, her background and her history informs her personality. Mm -hmm. And this is someone who, again, a theme, like she endured this tragic experience as a child where she witnesses her mom's death when she's like nine years old. Mm -hmm. And so she's really bonded to Harry in that way. Um, They can both see the Thestrals because they both see someone die. Mm -hmm. And so they kind of bond over these traumatic childhood experiences that they have. But despite that, she still has this like serene presence. She kind of just Mm -hmm. like floats through the series. She throws, she, whatever room that she's in, she kind of just is like airy, but not in a way that's like negative. She's just kind of above everyone, but also not in a way that's negative. She's just, um, she's, she's aware of how she's perceived. She knows that people think that she's a weirdo. She has the, she has the line where she says, like, people call me Looney Lovegood, I think, you know? Yeah. Um, but that's not, she's not, she's complete, completely unaffected by her reputation. And she is still, like, in every situation, she is, like, 100% authentically herself. Yes. And that's just really, really great for me. That's really important to me. What are your thoughts on Luna before we keep going? So, like you said, I was, I had wanted to put her on my list of top three characters, Um, but like no need to talk about her twice because we can both kind of like talk about this and talk about other characters. Um, I think that Luna Lovegood at first reading it, I'm like, oh, she just is like very, she's out there and she's comfortable with it. And like, that's great. Um, and like reading through the series and like fully seeing like just who she like she's genuinely a good person like when she is trapped at Malfoy Manor with Ollivander like he is nothing but nice things to say about her and like people people think she's odd and she's fine with it but like it's not that she like she tolerates it but she's not surrounding herself by those people like she's she goes and she hangs out with people who are like not being like mean not mean but like low-key bullying her she's like i do not have time for your nonsense she knows a lot about everything she is like hermione where she just like is a wealth of information in the books but it's like very just like offbeat information and like you said her being very genuine like i think like now in life like that is like a very like I'm so appreciative of her as a character that kids read about because kind of looking at like the age group that they actually are in these books like that's not really an age that people are like yeah let me just like be unapologetically myself um and she has no filter but it's not in a negative way like she's very kind and thoughtful and um like you said she's like so self-aware 
it, she is just a very good character to have in these books. You make a really good point that I hadn't thought of in terms of kids reading this book who are like 13 or 14. And so much of your life at that age is worried about being considered cool. Yeah. Which I hate. Like looking back on it, I, I look back at middle school and like early high school, really throughout high school, but especially early high school, late middle school, you're just like dominated by how you're perceived yep. and wanting people to either think that you're cool or not think that you're not cool, right? Mm-hmm. They, you want people to either have a positive opinion on you or like not have an opinion on you so that you're not getting bullied. Yeah. And she just like, it's, it's such a, it's so important to have a character like that who's just like doesn't care either way. Like literally is like the message of Luna is like be yourself yeah. in any situation. And she's like not afraid to be herself in any situation. Yeah. And again, like she knows how she's perceived and um, she acknowledges it, but she still like keeps it moving. She's still herself. And yep. that is like, I agree with you completely. Like that's a really important, um, good message to promote to like, you know, young teenagers reading these books. Yeah. Like, it's definitely easy to forget that that's who these books are, like, kind of for. Right. Like, they're for everyone. I don't really care what people say when they're like, Harry Potter's a children's book. Like, yes, it is. So, like, it's important that the themes that kids can, like, easily pick up on, they understand. Luna is a character who, like, the message she has is very easy for children to be like, oh, like, here's someone who just, like, maybe for like younger girls they're like oh she like is smart and is not afraid to be like no I know the answer to this and like it's not necessarily like how Hermione is very book smart which is great for kids to see also but Luna is like no I know about this thing in the world and I'm going to share it with people and you can either take it or leave it but I'm sharing anyway (laughs) she's like the like the type of character she is is like a trope kind of like I think about even on like tv shows where it's like the hippie character. Yeah. Like kind of the offbeat, you know, hippie spaced out character, maybe like the the pothead character, like that type of thing. Yeah. And Luna is kind of like a comment on that type of character, but her like self-awareness, again, like that kind of separates her from that, where she's like, she knows that she's the hippie. Yeah. And, um, but she's also so like, she's really versatile, um, yeah. I, I kind of, I wanted to talk about her and, and Deathly Hallows a little bit because she really, she really shines in that book, in my yeah. opinion. And I have here in my notes talking about like her father, Xenophilius. Yeah. And how, um, you know, we see how much of her personality she gets from him where he's, yeah. he's also, he's a little bit more arrogant than she is, but he's kind of like, you know, he's got the radish earrings and, you know, he's wearing the Deathly Hallow symbol and he's, you know, dressed like a hippie, basically a wizard yep. hippie. And um, he's like, I reading that book um, for the first time, reading Deathly Hallows for the first time, like I, I understood like why he would like betray the three. Yeah. But like now that I'm actually a father, like now I really get it where it's okay. like he's he's desperate right like your his daughter's been abducted yeah and i can't really you know for those of you who are listening who have kids like it's if your daughter's abducted like you're gonna do literally anything to get her back like anything 
and I really, um, your child in general, like what if your child has been taken and is holding, it's being held for ransom or whatever it is, like you're going to go through whatever lengths possible to get your child back. And so I, I really understood um, his actions in that book more so now. I, I just understand it in a way now that I didn't when I was, before I had kids. And he's like, you take him from the beginning of the book where he's, you know, this arrogant kind of, not like over the top arrogant, but, you know, kind of full of himself guy yeah. still, but he's still like, you know, he's supporting Harry and everything like that. But then he, he at the end of the book or the middle part, and he's, you know, printing this anti-Harry propaganda and, you know, he calls on the death leaders knowing that he's there. Like, he's just pushed to this, these extremes that he wouldn't, you know, he wouldn't have done that if it wasn't for Luna being taken. Yeah. And so, like, I really understood that in a, in a new way now. I, that's interesting that you point that out because, like, I think about him selling out Harry, Ron, and Hermione and I'm just like, well, like, it shows that, like, Luna is, like, the hero in that. Like, she, throughout the rest of the Deathly Hallows, and even, like, before that, like, she was, I mean, she's in Ravenclaw, so you know she's very intelligent. She's she's with it. Um, but then in Deathly Hallows, you see that she's also, like, very courageous, and um, I perceived her father to be the opposite because of that. But, like... I also like don't have children. So reading that, I think of it like from a very narrow perspective of like, why would you do this? Like they're trying to save everyone and you're only looking out for the good of one as opposed to the good of like the whole. But like the point you make is like the important thing that like a lot of readers might not necessarily be able to put themselves in that situation where like oh my child is taken um because like they're not parents yet and like that's just not even a a thought at least like for me (laughs) i won't no i'll put this on other people i won't be like other people feel that like like no like i and i i think that that is exactly how someone in that situation would and should behave like yeah that's yeah no, I completely agree with you because like she and like when you talk about Luna in Malfoy Manor when she's been abducted and she's, you know, held hostage there. Yeah. I agree with you. Like she's so she's so courageous. And that's kind of a theme in these books in terms of like when you mention houses where she's obviously super intelligent, um, which is why she's been sorted in a Ravenclaw. But she also has these different aspects of the different houses. Like she shows the courage of a Gryffindor when she's in there and she's, you know, she's taking care of Ollivander and, and grip hook and, and, and Dean is in there as well. And, you know, she's so, she's really level-headed and she's, you know, um, in a, in a, pre- in a pressure situation, a life or death situation, she's, you know, she's ready for action, but like she gets to be cre- courageous, right? Like, yeah in a way that, you know, xenophilias can't like, yeah. you, if you, when you're a father, like you can't be courageous like that. Like all that you're thinking is, um, I have to get my child back. Like yeah. that's it. Like that's whatever it is I need to do to do that. I'm going to do that. And cause I, I agree. Like it's definitely, they, they, they behave in different ways. Yeah. But when, when you're a dad, when you're a parent, like you, like, logic and and courage and whatever else it just goes out the window like all it is 
is, and I mean, you're going to be courageous, courageous in whatever way you can to get your child back, but it's not yeah. like, it's not courage. It's like desperation. Like I'm yeah. going to do whatever it takes. And you see, he is a very desperate man at the end of that book because of, you know, his daughter Luna being taken from him. Yeah. Which fair. Like, yeah, <laughs> I think he is um, within his, his rights to be like that. And it's, I don't know, to me, he, he, he is like a, I don't know if I'd even consider him a tier two side character. He's like a yeah. tier three side character. Yeah. And like, it really does become, it's about Luna. It's not really yeah. even about him. It's about Luna. Um, and she just, yeah, she shines in Deathly Hallows. She's, she's just really great. Really, really great in that book. And um, I, I, we mentioned earlier, like this is someone who I, I, I think would have made sense for Harry to, you know, to be with in some capacity. Yes. Um, To, God damn, that sounded dirty. You know what I mean. Yeah. Um, (laughs) To, uh, you know, to, you know, consider dating or I don't know if they would have ended up together or whatever, but like they have these similar things, these similar childhood experiences. They're both outcasts in a lot of ways. Yeah. And um, they, they both kind of have this like, this determination about them. Like Harry's really determined to do things his way and to um, proceed with his missions and to, you know, to solve these problems. And Luna's just really determined to like be herself and to um, hang out with her friends. Like there's this moment in Deathly Hallows where they go into her, her room and she has like these images of them on their, on their wall and she, they're like connected and, you know, it's like friends is written out. She's just, um, she's, someone that you that you want to have on your side you know what I mean she's someone that you want to to hang out with and to be to be bonded with because um she know you know that she's she's gonna ride for you and she's you know gonna have your best interests at heart and so those types of things like she's such a purely good character yes that I think that it would have made sense for for her and Harry a little bit what do you think about that I I think that um like when you had said that earlier where you're like oh I could see him with other people and um Luna is someone that I'm like oh yeah because Order of the Phoenix and you're right that like it it's terrible that she's only in three of the books um and Order of the Phoenix being the first one that she's in and like I think she takes Harry like she kind of catches him off guard because she just is like talking and like giving all these facts and being like oh yeah you can see them too and he's like what um, I think that because she's different and like, he has to be like, oh, someone else is like being treated differently than me for different reasons. But like, he's also becoming kind of an outcast in that book. And like, they can kind of like bond over it. Luna is like, be my friend. Don't be my friend. I don't care either way. Just be like a good friend. Um, so I think that that would have been like a, a good pair. Luna would have been very, I don't know, like when she is explaining things to people, it, she's never talking down. So like things in the wizarding world, she's just like, oh, like, like the Deathly Hallows and like um, how her dad explains it is like, oh, well, you don't know the story. But like any other time that she's talking about like the Nargles, <laughs> she's just like, oh, like well, they exist. Um, so Harry probably would not have felt like dumb in that. Um, 
and he's like very secure around Luna. So that could have worked out. It's just one of those things, you know, it's like, you know, we, we'll try it. You know, we, we've been in these situations together. We'll see. Maybe there's something there. Maybe there's not. But it's one of those things. I see it as a way I've, I'm giving way too much thought to this. But I see it as one of those <laughs> things where it's like, hey, we tried it, but we're still, it didn't work out, but we're still cool. We're still close. We're still good friends. Like that type of thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's definitely because, like, I think Harry would feel bad for ever being mean to her. And right. She'd yeah. be like, no, like, we can move past this. Like, she is like looping in that where she's just very like logical. Yeah. And really good point you made about order of the Phoenix specifically, where he's the one where it's like, you know, he's saying Voldemort's back and most of his classmates don't agree with him. And there's this contention between the two or between him and his, and a lot of his classmates. And he does become like this outcast and she's like still there for him. She's an outcast herself. So there, there's another relatable aspect. Um, in that sense as well. Um, let's go to your number one. Who's your number one character? Um, Neville Longbottom is probably my favorite side character of like any of the people we've talked about. Like I love Luna. I think she is just like a really good character. She's super well written. Um, I think Remus Lupin and Sirius Black bring a lot to the table. Um, I think that all of these characters, good. Neville Longbottom, Neville Longbottom, um, he first appears in the Sorcerer's Stone. He's a hot mess. Like, he's just, like, losing things left and right. Like, he is written to just be kind of, I, I wouldn't say, like, an idiot, but he's definitely, like, bumbling around. And, like, people, like, Draco Malfoy picks on him. And you would think that, like, Neville... He's just, like, kind of nervous, and, like, he, like, he grew up with his grandmother. We find out later, like, why he lives with his grandmother and why she's always like, Neville, get your life together. Um, His parents were oars, and, like, they were well-known. They were very good at their job. Like, they were very well-respected, and so, like, he kind of has to, like, live up to that. What happens to them is, like, also pretty traumatic for him because he goes and visits them in like the wizard hospital they've been tortured to basically like lose their minds um by bellatrix lestrange (laughs) um and he over the course of the series just really comes into his own um like he kind of still remains kind of bumbling around just like somehow magically doing things all right like he scrapes by he he's kind of stumbles into doing well he ends up being really into like herbology and the uh professor sprout is the head of hufflepuff so like you know the the reader might be like well why, why did neville get sorted into gryffindor like you see in harry potter and the sorcerer's stone like he earns points for the house for standing up to harry ron and hermione like they're trying to sneak out to go stop uh Voldemort from getting the Sorcerer's Stone and Neville's like no I'll stop you um you shouldn't be going out there and they like paralyze him so that he like has to stay and but but at the end um Dumbledore like recognizes like it does take some courage to like stand up to your friends when you what you're saying to them like makes sense as a friend where you're like no like this is actually dangerous for you like let me help you like he's trying to be a good friend and like throughout the series he is a good friend he always like stands by harry um 
he like is part of Dumbledore's army. Like Neville is a character that is throughout the books, like very a very significant part of the books while also being just like in the background. Like he's just kicking it and probably losing his remember all. So um what ends up being like significant is like the prophecy about Harry and uh Voldemort. It could have been about Voldemort and Neville. So my question to you is like, what if it had been Neville instead of Harry? Such an interesting question. Um, uh, to answer that, I guess I have to, we have to look at like both of their natures, yeah. which is similar. They have similar natures a lot of the time or a lot of that because of the context in which they were raised yeah. um, and the circumstances that happened to them as children. I think of Neville as like, Neville to me is like Clark Kent. Like okay. the, the, the bumbling, you know, kind of looked over person. And I, I, Neville to me is Clark Kent without Superman, like separate from Superman. And I don't mean that in the way that like Neville is like a weak guy who's always weak. I don't mean that like at all. Clark Kent to me, like if you just look at the character of Clark Kent, right? Reporter, you know, bumbling on purpose you know low-key but yeah um but Clark Kent is a smart capable um good at his job genuinely good person right like genuinely selfless um willing to stand up for people like that's what Neville is to me Neville is like a genuinely good you know kind of bumbling like you said stumbling around trope of a character but he has heart and he is going to stand up for himself. He's going to stand up for other people. Um, It might take him a while to get to it, but, but he's going to do it. And his arc is such that um, he's able to come into his own at the end of the series as much as any other character. Yeah. So your, your question about like, what if Neville, like Neville would have, um, in my opinion, that he, he would have used whatever resources he could in order to stop Voldemort in the same the way that Harry did. Yeah. Like he's his his nature is similar to Harry's. He is um he's not a problem solver like Harry, but he's a determined person like Harry. Yeah. And and it's so it's so important again to see the ways that Voldemort impacts people's lives outside of just Harry. Yeah. Um Voldemort's followers tortured Neville's parents into into insanity like you said and that moment in Order of the Phoenix where they're at St. Mungo's and they run into Neville and he's visiting his parents who don't you know they don't recognize him and you know his, they're both insane and he's this kind of like he's kind of shocked to see them there but he doesn't want to you know he's not ashamed he doesn't want them to think that he's ashamed of his parents yeah. And of course his friends are like, well, why didn't you like, of course we're not going to, you know, but he, he's so he's self-conscious in a way that like Luna isn't right. Like we talk about yeah. how Luna is like not self-conscious at all. Neville is self-conscious, but it comes from a place of childhood trauma and having to live up to this amazing or reputation of his parents. Yeah. But you know, he's, he's good at what he's good at. He's good at herbology. He excels in that. And he is, you know, there's a lot of things that he's not good at, but the things that he's not good at, he works hard on. And I think about Order of the Phoenix, too, where 
he starts um, when it's um, when it gets um, released to the public that Bellatrix Lestrange is broken out of Azkaban, right? Like then yeah. it cuts to the Dumbledore's army meetings and there's a line where it's like, ever since Neville heard about that, like he started training extra, extra hard. Yeah. And starts, you know, advancing past some of his other um, classmates. So Neville would have done the best that he could and he would have had help around him like Harry did. Um, That's, and to me, that's just like a testament to the type of character that Neville is. Like Neville would have done everything in his power. He would have shown the same bravery as Harry. He would have um, gone through this to the same lengths as Harry would have done. Like, um, I'm really confident in saying that he would have. Um, there's nothing that Harry was willing to do that Neville wouldn't have been willing to do. Yeah, I think it. I think you're right. I think the story would have looked a little different just because right. their strengths are in different places. For and, sure, and. Um, I think, well, because, like, all the same characters, like, they're all friends with all the same people. Yeah. Um, So you would still see, like, a lot of the, like, Luna being just, like, this very strong character. Um, You would have seen Ginny becoming a very strong character. Um, I'm, like, I'm just interested in, like, what that story would look like if it had been Neville. Would it have been, like, Ron and Hermione as like his close friends or would it have been like other people because he grew, he still would have grown up in the wizarding world. Yeah. So like his access to things, he, it'd be one less barrier just because he is knowledgeable of it. Um, but so, I just, I want to go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. I just kind of wrapping that up of just like, it, it would have been a very interesting story. And it, yeah, I think that Voldemort probably would have exploited him in a different way than Harry. For sure, for sure. He's like, like Neville is a little bit less hard-headed than Harry. Yeah. And like Voldemort uses that to his advantage. Exactly. To like exploit Harry. And I don't think he, like Neville would have been more willing to listen up. Like a situation like the, in order where Harry is having these visions of Sirius being tortured and Hermione is like, you know, Voldemort is planning that in your head, I think. Like, just think about it. Like, think through this. Like, he knows your nature of wanting to save people. So he's planning that in your head. So, like, let's say that Neville, and again, like, that would have happened for Neville because, you know, Sirius wasn't his godfather, like, that type of thing. But, like, if something similar to that happened, I'm not saying that Neville wouldn't have wanted to save, go to the ministry and save a Sirius as much as Harry would. But Neville would be more willing, in my opinion, to listen to her, uh, Hermione tell him, you know, maybe that's not the best play. Maybe, you know, yeah, maybe you're being fooled. So, yeah, yeah like he would have been probably manipulated in, in different ways, I think. And then so much of this stuff is like, you know, happenstance or like divine inter- intervention or however you want to say it. But like Harry and Ron become friends because Ron happens to sit in his, apart- in his compartment yeah. in the Hogwarts Express, right? Yeah. So like that type of thing with, with Neville, maybe it's, maybe it's Ron, maybe it's Dean Thomas, you know, maybe it's Luna, maybe it's Jenny. And like, there's, a, there's kind of a, a side trio off from the main trio of Neville, Jenny and Luna. Yeah. So maybe that is, so maybe those two are his, you know, 
or his, maybe that's the main trio. I don't know, but it's it's such an interesting thought exercise. It's when I think of like Goblet of Fire, like how Harry is very not willing to go ask people for help. Like with the, just like getting through the tasks and he's like, how can I figure out a way to like breathe underwater? And I don't, he's just like, I wouldn't know where to even look. And um, like preparing for the maze. And I think that Neville, one already had the book. So he was like, he would have gone with his strength there. So it would have been kind of how Harry's strength was with the dragon. Um, yeah, there'd be so many different things that I'm like, oh, how would he solve this? Who would he hang out with? Like, obvious. And then, like, what does it mean for Harry? Like, Harry's no longer like this Harry Potter. Um, it's true. Yeah, he, he's just like another kid, and who has both parents. Yeah, yeah. Like in in both instances, like Neville doesn't get his parents. It doesn't matter if he is like the chosen one or not. Whereas, like if Voldemort does attack Neville instead of Harry. Like Harry's parents do stay alive. He doesn't ever like suffer the abuse of the Dursleys. Obviously his parents are like fairly well off. So would he still, like he probably would still have become friends with Ron and Hermione, but would he have become friends with like other wizarding families? And would he be similar to Neville where they're like in the world together? They grew, they might've even grown up together. I don't know. There's so many what ifs. Yeah, for <laughs> sure. Um, it's really interesting to think about. That's a really good question. I have, yeah. I have one question for you regarding Neville. Yeah. And this is about the actor who plays him, Matthew yeah. Lewis. And I, when I think of Neville, I think of Matthew Lewis and how he kind of had like this glow up that parallels Neville's in the books. Yeah. So like on screen, he's, you know, he starts as this, you know, you know, whatever, you know, kind of pudgy short kid or whatever. And then he grows into like this, like really handsome, you know, well-built guy. Yeah. And, you know, he's got, you know, everyone thirsting after him and all this other stuff. <laughs> like, what do you, do you, what do you think of that? Like kind of parallel? Um, I think for in like the movie, that's good just for like the visual of like, oh, like he's definitely gone from being like, a dork to like less of a dork like you can you can see that he has like the confidence um where like I guess the books do show that he's like developing the confidence and like his behavior um but like she doesn't really write about like his physical appearance in that way where like he's just still kind of Neville right um he just kind of he gets it together in terms of like how he is interacting with everyone. Like, he's like, nope, we need to, like, stop Voldemort. Um, So I think that it was good, like, in the movies because, like, obviously in the books, he is developed, like, he develops as a character in so many ways for, like, confidence. And, like, in the movies, I feel like in the movies, they don't, like, show him a ton. But I, I think of him, when I think of Neville, I think of him in that first movie where he's just, like, kind of lost looking yeah Um, and i'm like oh yes this is the neville of the books and then like where he is like courageous in the last movie where i'm like oh yes the neville of the books so i i think that the movies do a good reflection of the 
the books for Neville's glow up and it helped that the actor very much had a glow up in his life. I think I, I like read or I saw this interview with JK Rowling where she's talking about how like, I think it was before they started shooting the fifth movie and like all the actors came back from the summer or whatever. And they're about to start shooting the movie and like Matthew Lewis comes in and she didn't recognize him. And she thought that it was someone like coming in to audition for the Cormac role. Yeah. Which doesn't come in until the sixth movie, obviously. But then someone was like, no, that's Matthew. And she's like, what? And so they had to like, if you look in the movies, like as he gets older and he gets taller and he gets more fit, like they start dressing him in like loose fitting clothes. And he's always like slumping his shoulders down and stuff like that. Like they're trying to make him look quote unquote more like Neville because he's kind of like in real life, he's like kind of grown beyond this, you know, short, pale kid who's unconfident or whatever. Yes. And I, and like that, again, that's not something that she necessarily wrote, but like in the movies, it's good that they had him behave like that because that if you are thinking about someone who's like not confident, they probably are just like behaving in that way. Um, And it's not that she outright says that Neville's like not confident, but like, again, the behavioral cues of like, he, he, he like forgets things. He's like, Oh, of course I forget things. Or like in, goblet of fire when he has a really tough time with the unforgivable curses and like he just is like freaking out and has a moment with Mad-Eye Moody like I think that um that translated fairly well to screen and what they did in terms of like him being like kind of insecure but not necessarily insecure with who he is as a per like how Ron is insecure. Like right. Ron wears his insecurity. He's just like, my best friend is famous. I am one of many children. <laughs> I am like the youngest. Like, what is special about me? I want them to just value me for me individually. And Neville's not like that. He just like he's carrying a lot. So um yeah, I think that it's good that she just writes those two different types of insecurities that can then be kind of seen on screen as like they're obviously not going through the same thing in that for sure yeah i agree it's like the it's a different it's it's similar but it's like it's such it's a different type of insecurity between the two of them yeah and that comes from like their positionality in the story and um yeah yeah, it's just it's it's i think it's the, the differences are really written in a in a direct and um understandable way so yeah any um before we wrap up any 